Welcome to the Gerald Brooks Leadership Podcast, a deep dive into biblical leadership with pastor and author, Dr. Gerald Brooks. Thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. What we're going to do is we're going to pick up where we left off. In the last podcast, we talked about staff stuff. This was a lesson that was derived from a couple of questions that I was asked in a roundtable last year. I was asked by a leader, uh, what do you expect of the people that are on your team? And I could tell that the question was a pretty intense one for him because of his expectations of what team members should do, what team members shouldn't do. And um, I immediately began to dig down into it. And last time we were here, we gave you five principles. Just for the sake of time, we're not going to review those. You can go to the previous podcast and you can look at it. Um, But the very fifth thing that we said about um, what is expected is that it's all right to have house rules. And house rules are a critical part of every organization. And every organization has house rules. Now, they may not have been written down, they may not have been articulated clearly, but anyone that is a part of the team knows that there are certain expectations that are just there. Those expectations may not be in any kind of employment manual, uh, but they're just the house rules. It's true with my family. Uh, When our kids were at home, Jenny and I had some house rules. It was just an expectation. Uh, Here's one of our house rules. Uh, You're never on the road between 1 and 6 in the morning. That's a house rule. The reason was, as a pastor, I know that the majority of people who die, who are in fatal car crashes, happens between 1 and 6 in the morning. So I knew that if my kids were not on the road between 1 and 6 in the morning, I cut down the likelihood that they would ever be in a fatal car crash. So it was just known. If you couldn't get home between 1 and 6, that you called, you let us know where you were. At that point, we would make strategic plans. And if that meant that we had you go someplace or we had you stay where you're at or somebody came to pick you up, between 1 and 6, you were not going to be on the road as long as you were at my house. It was just a house rule. Well, in organizations, they're house rules. Uh, At my organization, we believe that punctuality is a fruit of the Spirit. We believe that you start on time. If you say you're going to start on time, you start on time. If you say a practice is going to start at a certain time, you start at a certain time. If you say that the prayer meeting is going to begin at a certain time, you begin at that certain time. It is one of our house rules. We do not start late. We may start early, but we do not start late. It's just one of our house rules. And so people who struggle on being on time, not showing up on time, honestly, our culture is going to be difficult for them because punctuality is a fruit of the Spirit. Uh, We also believe that leadership is caught as much as it's taught. So when it comes to the leaders in our organization, we want them to sit up front. The reason we want them to sit up front is by their actions. When we're having services, they are illustrating what you are to do. 
So if they have the outline and they're filling out the outline, if uh, they're there and they're uh, active in worship, then what they've done is by their presence, everyone is looking over their head as they are looking at the stage and they are seeing leadership by our top leaders. So it's just known. You're up front. You do the things that we want everyone to do because in an organization, it's not what you say that gets done. It's what people see repeatedly that gets done. And so there are house rules that we have. Now, it's all right to have house rules. And that's what I want to say to every organization. Just be honest about them. Be clear about them. One of the things I had to learn was that there were house rules and someone would new come on our team and they would violate those house rules and it would frustrate me. And then it became clear to me that they just didn't know. They didn't know what the house rules were. So that was number five. It's all right to have house rules. But that brings us to number six. Your position is never an excuse to be an exception. So if you're going to have house rules, you are not an exception to those house rules. So if there is something that is going to happen, like... uh, A few uh, years ago, I walked into staff meeting. I don't want anyone looking at their phone, playing with their phone, texting on their phone, doing anything on their phone during a staff meeting. Uh, If they're taking notes, that's what they can do. They can't do anything else. But there was a pastor that I am a mentor to that was having heart surgery. And I told the staff up front, I'm going to be getting a call. This is going to let me know how the surgery is. At this time in the staff meeting, whenever that call comes in, I will be stepping out. Well, I didn't violate the house rule. I clarified that there was a circumstance for that particular moment that was unique for that particular occasion because people were dependent on my involvement in this crisis moment in this pastor's life that I needed to step out, that it needed to be real time. It couldn't be done in any other format. So that being said, Uh, You've just got to understand that one of the things that frustrates people in an organization is not that you have house, house rules, but when they see people being an exception to the house rules. And if they see people being an exception to the house rules, your rules no longer bring a positive outcome. They become a point of division. And so... For me, because I am so emphatic on where I want my people to park, that we park far away, we don't park close. As I said in the last podcast, there is not a, quote, pastor's parking space for me. I don't have a problem with how any other church does that. But I have a house rule. Our leaders park the furthest away. So I park away. It wouldn't be right for me to say everyone else parks way far away, but I have a parking spot. Now, there are times when I'm traveling and I know that I've got to leave the service. And so the way I manage that is I will give my keys to someone on staff and say, have my car waiting. But where I parked at the beginning of the service was there. But when I need to go, they brought my car up. And so I'm able to manage the things. So again, I'm saying all of this to say, if you want to create frustration in an organization, have house rules that some are required to live up to, others are not required to live up to, and what you will do is you will create a conflict. Now, 
point number seven is this. We have to teach honestly. And to me, this is one of the biggest equations uh, in organizational leadership is that a lot of times we haven't taught the organizational structure, the organizational requirements, the what's required, when it's required, and of whom it's required, and we haven't taught that honestly. You have to articulate it. Uh, Because of the nature of what I do, uh, mine involves three things that I believe I have to teach. I have to teach ministry honestly. I have to talk about ministry in honest terms. I have to teach church because being in ministry, church is one of those things that we do. And I have to teach church honestly. And then I have to teach life honestly. How do you do ministry? How do you do church? And how does that play in to life? So let me walk you through those three things. Uh, Ministry. If I'm going to teach ministry honestly to a bunch of young people beginning in ministry, then what I've got to be very, very honest with them about is that ministry requires that you are good at two worlds. Now, that may sound so basic and sort of a a duh kind of moment, but I'm telling you, we've got to be honest about this. We've got to teach people that ministry requires that you're good at two worlds. To do ministry, you've got to be good at the natural world and the spiritual world. You've got to be good at both. Now, let me just say this. Um, You can have most jobs in life and you only have to be good at one world. You can be an accountant. It doesn't matter whether you're good at a spiritual world. You can be an accountant and just be good at a natural world. You can be an attorney and just be good at a natural world. You can be uh, a physician and just be good at a natural world. And so the majority of all kids that go off to school, uh, they're taught a skill set What they're taught is they are taught they only have to be good at one world. Excel as an accountant, excel as an attorney, excel as a nurse, as a physician, excel in whatever, and their skill set requires just being good at one world. But in ministry, you have to be good at two worlds. You cannot succeed in ministry and just be good naturally nor can you succeed in ministry and just uh, be good at spiritual world kind of things. So one of the things that we haven't taught honestly about ministry is that you've got to be good, but not only do you have to be good, but that the very nature of working at a church creates a false positive. And people all the time start in ministry and they fall subject to the false positive. Because there's something that's a false positive. It's like when you go to a doctor and 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 a doctor does a, a battery of tests and one of the tests comes back and it indicates something and the doctor doesn't react, but you're really, really concerned about that. But the doctor knows that there's a certain percentage of of tests that come back with a false positive and he says, hey, we're going to wait a month, we're going to run the test again. Your intention over that month, finally the test gets run again, 
the doctor says, see, it was a false positive. It said something that really wasn't true. Well, church creates a false positive. And so what that is, is it is something that has to be taught. See, people who work on my team are going to work 45 to 50 hours, and they're going to do that at church. Now, here's the false positive. The false positive is this. If you're going to be on my team and you're going to be at church, there are going to be times when we pray. So we're going to have times when we start our staff meeting, we're going to pray. When we're busy doing service things, we're going to pray. We're going to interject prayer throughout what we do. Why? Because Jesus said, my father's house, it will be called a house of prayer. So if you're going to work at a church, you're going to pray. Now, because you pray at church, that creates a false positive. At church, you pray. But because you're on staff at a church and you pray, the false positive is is that you think that somehow, because you've prayed at church, that is a replacement for your personal prayer time. And so the false positive is, I prayed at church, Therefore, I fulfilled my prayer time. The simple truth of the matter is our life is no different than anyone else. I have people that go work 45 to 50 hours every week at Frito-Lay, at JCPenney's. I have them work at Dr. Pepper. I have them work at Frito-Lay. And they work. But you know what I'm going to teach them? No matter what you do at work, you have to have a personal prayer time. But when people work at a church, they think, I pray at church, therefore, somehow, that replaces my personal prayer time. If you want ministry to kill you, then think, because you've prayed at church, because that's your job, that that is a substitute for your personal prayer time. If we don't teach people that, ministry eats them alive. They will not be able to survive. Because how we pray at church and what we pray at church is never a substitute for your personal time with your prayer time with God. At church, we study the Bible. At church, we refer to the Bible. At church, we interact with the Bible. But can I tell you, because you're at church and you work at a church and you're around the Bible and you hear the Bible and we interact with the Bible, it can create a false positive. And the false positive is, well, I was at church and I had my Bible. I was at church and I had my Bible here. But see, what you do at church is not a substitute for your devotional time. When you just have your devotional study where God's not speaking to you about other people, but God's speaking to you about you. And so what happens is, is we have people who work at churches and they said, I prayed at church, therefore I don't need my prayer time. I study the Bible at church, therefore I don't need my devotional time. And church creates a false positive. They think because they're good at church they're good, but it's a false positive. Let's take it another thing. People who are at church and work at a church, they're at church all the time. They work at church. 
they're at church. And because they work at church and they're at church, one of the false positives is, well, I've been at church all day. Why should I go to the service? And it creates a false positive. And they forget that they need to attend church. Now, because they work at a church, they're at church, they're there all the time, they think, well, hey, I shouldn't have to go to the church. So I'll literally have pastors ask me the question. Uh, I have staff who say because they're at church all the time, they don't need to go to church services. And I look at them and I said, you know what? There's nothing about working at a church that stops you from being a Christian. And Christians go to church. The same way people at Frito-Lay go to church. The same way people at J.C. Penney's go to church. The same way that people at Dr. Pepper go to church. You know what? You are not an exemption. You go to church. Why? Because that's a part of being a Christian. So if we don't teach ministry properly, then people think this. They'll think, I prayed at church. I saw the Bible at church. I work at church. I heard worship songs at church. And they will be good at one world. They'll be good at a natural world of doing their job. But they'll be bad at a spiritual world where God said, I want you to have a prayer time that's focused on me. I want you to have a devotional time that's with me. I want you to come to church where you're with the people of God and you're with me. And I want you to be people who worship, not because it's a job, but because I'm worthy of being worshipped. And if we do not set the standards and teach people, I'm telling you what happens is people have this mistaken idea of going to church uh, and working at a church and thinking it's going to be so wonderful. And then they think they're an exception of doing the disciplines everyone who is a Christian has to do. So when's the last time you asked someone on your staff, how was your prayer time? What did you learn in your devotional today? What did you get out of a church service? Not what did you do at a church service. What did you get at? And when did you just worship God? When did you make melody to the Lord? When did you do it? See, if you don't teach people that they've got to be at two worlds, they won't last in church. They'll make everything about church and pretty soon they lose Christ. I think I said it in another podcast. One of the things that you find out is churches reach lost people, but they kill pastors. And they kill pastors when pastors let the church be a replacement for what they're to do individually. So if you don't teach it, they fall into the assumption. Another thing we have to teach, honestly, is we have to teach just church. We have to teach them that church is a contact sport. And what that means is when you work at a church, you're going to deal with people during the worst moments in their life. You're going to deal with them when they're hurting. You're going to deal with them when they're sad. You're going to deal with them when they're angry. 
You're going to deal with them when they're frustrated. And you know what? Hurting people hurt people. And so hurting people are going to hurt people. And every now and then that person that they're going to hurt is going to be the person who's trying to help them. And so you've got to be honest and say church is a contact sport. There are going to be times when you're going to take a hit. There are going to be times when when someone articulates things towards you that they're really feeling towards God. Remember, it's the old principle. Um, Cain had a problem with God, so he killed Abel. That's what happens in life. When people have problems with God, they take it out on other people. So that tends to be the staff. And so church is a contact sport. And we've got to teach them survival skills. Now, survival skills are are just simple. If we're talking about football, you know you don't tackle what you can't see. Why did they say that? You have your head up because if you tackle people with your head down, that's when neck injuries happen. You tackle with your head up. What do they say? And um, hockey, you don't skate with your head down. You skate with your head down, someone's about to put you down. You always skate with your head up. Well, in ministry, there are survival skills, and that involves your pain threshold. Years and years ago, um, I articulated a principle that your ministry grows to the size of your pain threshold. The pain threshold is this. If you are bothered by one person criticizing you, God will never let you be in a position where two people criticize you. People ask me, say, what's the difference between pastoring a hundred people and pastoring a thousand people? Here's the difference. When you pastor a hundred people, there are 10 people who believe it's their God-given job to criticize everything that you do. When you pastor a thousand people, there's a hundred people who believe it's their God-given job to criticize everything you do. God said he will not give you more than you can bear. Which means this, if you can't handle 10 people criticizing you, why would God give you a 1,000 people? Because every time you grow, you grow the number of people who will be mad at you. And if you have a need to have everyone like you, you're probably going to pastor, but you're probably not going to pastor a large group. Now, does that mean that uh, you just get used to people being mad at you? No, you know how to metabolize pain. You know how to handle pain. You know how to handle that. In fact, years ago when I wrote the book uh, Pain Threshold, I was asked this amazing question by a kid in Pennsylvania. He said, well, what do you do in ministry when your pain threshold doesn't match your wife or your husband's pain threshold? And I thought it was amazing because that happens. See, I may be pain-free. But if Jenny's going through a painful moment, I don't get to ignore it. She may be pain-free, but if I'm absorbing pain, she doesn't get to ignore it. But here's the thing. As a couple, both of us deal with pain differently. And so we've had to learn the principles. In fact, there's eight principles that I give for couples handling pain in ministry. Now, here's the thing. 
if you don't teach that, if people don't understand the survival skills, if everyone thinks that you're going to do a church service and at the end you're going to hold hands and sing Kumbaya and everyone's going to be happy with you. I have a phrase when I go home, Jenny will say, how did church go? And I said, I don't have any more people mad at me today than I usually do. Well, it's a little bit sarcastic. Well, let's be honest. It's a lot sarcastic. Um, But I say that because I know after every service, there's a certain number of people that I disappoint, that I didn't do what they wanted me to do or do it as well as they wanted me to do it. I didn't emphasize their point. I didn't uh, prioritize their need as well as I could have. So you've got to understand and you have to teach that church is a contact sport. You have to teach people, hey, you're going to deal with hurting people and hurting people hurt people. But then you also have to teach a principle, and that is this. Our job is to help the hurting, not the unhappy. Now, you got to get that. Hurting is because of life and circumstances. Unhappiness is a choice. I don't chase unhappy people. I help hurting people. I can't change unhappy people. In fact, there were people who were unhappy at the last 10 churches they were at, and they will be unhappy at my church. The constant is they were at all of those churches. And at all of those, they were unhappy. So I do not spend my time trying to make unhappy people happy. That's their job. Everyone in our country has the right to the pursuit of happiness. Some people just choose not to pursue it. But that being said, I will help hurting people even when they hurt me. I will not go out of my way to pursue unhappy people just because they're unhappy. So you've got to teach people. Another thing is when it comes to ministry, when it comes to church, and then when it comes to life. And in life, you need mentors. And if there's anything I'd say to young people, a mentor isn't someone who's two months older than you. A mentor is someone who survives seasons of life that are farther along than you. The simple truth of the matter is everyone needs mentors. When it comes to an organization, when people come into a church, they need mentors. And what that means is they need someone helping them understand the culture. When I walk in this meeting, what is the expectation? I know they say that this meeting is for this, but really, what's going to go on in that meeting? What is the expectation? And so you need mentors to help you understand the culture. You need mentors to help you be accountable. And you need mentors to help you understand others' expectations and to moderate your expectations. So, when it comes to staff stuff, we need to teach honestly about ministry, that you got to be good at two worlds. About church, it's a context sport. And about life, that we all need mentors, people who are further along, that can help us with culture, accountability, and expectations. Well, I found that in our roundtables, this lesson probably spurred more questions than any others. That being said, I want to say thank you for those of you that have listened to the podcast. Also ask a favor. 
the podcast are helping you, would you consider uh, just telling about it on your Facebook page or your Twitter account or something to get word out there? Because here's the deal. You don't raise up leaders without leadership being taught. And if this helps you raise up leaders, I really ask that maybe you would extend that. And then also, I want to remind you that um, I begin my new roundtables in January. And so in a couple of weeks, the first one will be in Plano, and then I have one in Florida, and then one in New Mexico, California, and all of those on our webpage. And just want to encourage you that the roundtables are interactive modes. They're what I live for, pastors and staff people who ask me questions. So all that being said, thank you so much for listening to this podcast, and I believe that you're doing so much for God, and God's doing so much for you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Gerald Brooks Leadership Podcast. If you'd like more information on Dr. Brooks's books, audio, or speaking engagements, please go to GeraldBrooksMinistries.com.